This is CliffCentral.com. This Lima views the Supreme Court vacancy. I don't care about that in any way. Please f*** off. I have a banana. I said, where are you from? Mexico. I said, that's great. I love you too. I do. I love Mexico. I've had tremendous relationships with people in Mexico. But I said, we need a strong border. I said, we need a wall. Because the website PolitiFact checked 77 of his statements and rated 76% of them as varying degrees of false. His brand is what he values uh, very much. And he, on his, his disclosure form that he's released, it's about $3 billion. That's what he values his brand as. Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, just so you understand, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. Honestly, I don't know David Duke. I don't believe I've ever met him. I'm pretty sure I didn't meet him, and I just don't know anything about him. Our people don't know what they're doing. Our leaders don't know what they're doing. I mean, we live off Chinese manufacturing, whether we like it or not. That's because... When you say we, you are stupid. People don't want my message. Maybe they want to stay mediocre. And if they do, they should put a politician in office because that's what's going to happen. Not a politician, a businessman. Wow. Donald J. Trump. Amazing. Uh, some of those uh, excerpts were courtesy of John Oliver from last week tonight. If you haven't seen the Donald Trump uh, thing, I've just put it on Twitter now, at Yebo underscore Levian, at Rory Shavalala. It's brilliant. Listen, first hour, we're speaking to Chris McGrill. He's from The Guardian, the US. He's a fascinating guy, hey? Self-taught, ran away from home at 16, didn't go to university and joined the Navy. And now he is heading up the Guardian US talking about politics. Wow. It's interesting. Uh, in in the US, we call that the American dream. In South Africa, we call it white privilege. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why are you going to do that? <laughs> oh, if you just joined the show, it's the second hour, frankly speaking. We're asking how could Donald Trump, Donald Trump be the next uh, US president? It's a scary space to live in when Donald Trump is the next president. He wants to kill ISIS family members. That's that's like akin to to human atrocities that he's talking about. Yeah, but I think there's something more serious that we we might be missing here, and that is just how um, this is. A po- politicians rely on what the people are thinking. All he is doing is he is echoing what most Americans think and how mm-hmm. they feel. Mm-hmm. So if this is how most Americans feel and this is how they sound then we really things are in a much worse situation than we we thought they were because all he does is he replays he replays to them what they're already thinking and they think this guy knows us Mm. these racist things yeah Mm -hmm. these racist things that he's saying oh i believe that too now what does that say about society what does that say about a country that has been uh, that had slavery abolished for so long and yet you still have these underlying uh, uh, you know, ideas and thoughts of just supremacist, uh, white supremacist ideologies and just an I don't care. And, and quite frankly, allowing him to get off uh, to 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 get off the hook on a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of untruths and a lot of bullshit. Oh, dear. 
<laughs> well, someone who, who knows all about uh, truths and hidden truths and hidden agendas. Uh, we're joined on the, the line from Johannesburg by uh, Mr. J. Brooks Spector. A lot of you will have known him from uh, his columns in the Daily Maverick. Some of you might not know that uh, Brooks actually spent a large part of his life as uh, a U.S. diplomat here in Africa and in East Asia. So he knows about the system. Uh, Brooks Spector, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. We're speaking about um, how could Donald Trump be the next U.S. president? Let's just start there. How, do, how does it make you feel seeing the rise of Donald Trump? Well, I don't think, I don't think we're allowed to say those words on air. <laughs> on Cliff Central, you're allowed to, you're say, allowed to say anything you want. You want, you want so Brooks, please go Brooks. ahead. <laughs> All right, that's the top line of the keyboard. <laughs> uh, in, in, in all seriousness, um, I, I want to correct one thing, if I might. It's not fair to say that most America that he's channeling what most Americans think. Let's mm. let's look. Let's dive into the numbers a little bit. Mm. He's been, he's been winning these Republican primaries and caucuses. Those those things where potential voters get together in church halls and school halls and vote on who they think is the person they like, and then that translates into delegates. Uh, he's winning in the Republican primaries uh, in ranges between 30 and 40-some percent. And that means that at least 60% of the people voting have voted against him. Now, add further to the fact that Republicans, generally speaking, are about 33, 35% of the electorate, uh, people who say they're Republicans. You know, in the U.S., you don't, you don't pay money to be a member of a party. You just say, put your hand up and say, hey, that's my party. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know I, that's my party, and I'll cry if I want to, I guess. Uh, and if that's true, then what? 35% of 35% gives you what? Gives you about 12, 13, 14 percent of the population is nuts. Mm -hmm. But is it uh, when we see just how how he seems to be winning all of these different uh, states? Uh, what is what is that telling us about the mood on the ground and the nature of of the people that he is appealing to? Yeah, no, that's important, um, and and that goes to the heart of it because it isn't just Donald Trump; it's also Bernie Sanders. And it's also other people. But it does say that a lot of people are disillusioned with government or angry with government or annoyed at government. Uh, part of it is that the Republican Party for the last 20-some years have been telling people that their government has failed them. And part of it is that they have itches that cannot be scratched. And there are two types of these things. One is what I call the demographic itch, and that the country is changing. It's no longer a lily-white country in you know the mental image of people. It's it's taken on a slight sort of beige tawny color. That's because minorities have become more important, become more visible, and and simply become larger as part of the national population and national conversation. And a lot of older white people just find that hard. But the second half of this is that the economy has become so globalized and so many lower-skilled factory work jobs 
have fled the country or disappeared completely. I mean, the thing that somebody was doing 50 years ago in Flint, Michigan, or Detroit, or St. Louis, or you know, pretty or Syracuse, New York, is now being done. If it's still being done at all in Shenzhen, China, or Dhaka, Bangladesh, or Colombo, Sri Lanka, or Hanoi in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and people who feel threatened simultaneously, simultaneously by the demographic change are now also buffeted by the economic one. And they are really ripe for somebody who comes along and says, your government's lied to you, it's deceived you, it's, it, it's, it, it's failed to tell you the truth, and I am going to fix it. I am going to build a wall, chase out all the Muslims, uh, put punitive tariffs on the Chinese products, etc., etc., etc. And by doing that, Obviously, it's a lie because none of those things are going to be done, even if he were elected, because they're against the law. They're against the Constitution and they're against, you know, a a whole book's worth of international treaties. Uh, And presidents, whoever they are, as long as they stay within the Constitution and law, can't arbitrarily abrogate international trade treaties. Uh, They can't arbitrarily decide on, you know, trillion-dollar construction projects that won't have any effect. Uh, the, the, the Great Wall against Mexico, of course, the, the great irony in that is that between the U.S. and Mexico, there's a net migration back to Mexico rather than toward the United States, mm-hmm. in part for economic circumstances and uh, jobs that have sprung up on the Mexican side of the border. But... Trump has managed to figure out a way to channel those anxieties, those fears, and those angers together with that the government lies to you, dissembles, and deceives you. And the reason why he's not, my daughter managed to explain this to me, and she's, you know, obviously a lot younger than I am and pays more attention to social media than I do, and she's in, in the music industry, and so she she pays attention to the sort of the popular wave of, of, of how people think and what they're talking about. And she said, remember, Donald Trump was on a, was the head of a reality show on television for years, and all of his energies were directed toward gaining audience share. You're in a radio business. You know something about audience share. And now he's simply taken everything he's learned and slid it over to the political sphere. So he's still after audience share, and he's managed to figure out how to use those techniques and those and those methods to convince people that he has the answer, because he has been number one in this thing, that thing, all the way. And, you know, the one thing that just throws me off stride completely, if you watch the debate, uh, or his speech in Orlando, Florida, which was last week. I have never, ever. Oh, my seen word. <laughs> you I, know I, honest, it's so great that you're mentioning that because I happened to turn on the TV Saturday night and there it was on CNN. And I, I didn't actually understand what he was saying. Like he made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, there, you know, if you heard the predecessor comment to it, the one where Marco Rubio, another contender, 
made reference to Trump's small hands and a little smirk, smirk, nudge, nudge. And you know what that means. Uh, and then Trump the next day gets up and says, hey, my hands are normal size and nobody's ever complained about any other part of my anatomy. And now we all know what <laughs> yeah. that means. Yeah. And, oh, and I'm sitting there going, well, we have reached a low that I have never seen. <laughs> and, and then yesterday, well, I guess last night in the U.S., uh, early, early morning here, <clears throat> in his uh, victory lap speech for the, 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 the primaries that were won uh, on Tuesday night, you know, what, what was he doing? He was shilling his branded products, Trump steaks, Trump vodka, and Trump wine. I swear to you. I mean, I just watched this and I go, I don't believe this. This is, uh, he's, he's being a pitch man just exactly as you would break away for a commercial on television. Mm. You know what's interesting to me is uh, Rory and Brooks. In 1961, or just 1960, I suppose, John F. Kennedy went against Richard Nixon. And just uh, hold my hold me to account if my history is incorrect. And that was the start of television. And Nixon isn't a beautiful man. In fact, he's a, a very unbeautiful man at the time. And uh, John F. Kennedy, well, we know, suave, sexy, beautiful, Marilyn Monroe, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people were saying that it was the movement from radio to TV that lost Nixon that that election. Um, and now we're into the social media space. And as you said, I mean, Donald Trump just knows exactly what to do. He knows how to move a crowd. I mean, you watched him on Saturday night. He spoke nothing about policies. He was like, isn't this a great night? Uh, aren't I the best campaigner in the world? And then as soon as things went awry, he just started chanting USA. And everyone chanted with him. I mean, the guy knows what he's doing. Well, I mean, he's uh, I, he's never there, had, except for those the, the the wackier versions of things, the, the wall, the Chinese tariffs, the banning of all Muslims, and the the killing of uh, of terrorist families. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. His his contribution to the policy debate is zero, but because he's managed to tap into that sub that almost subconscious fear of demographic change. And the very real understanding about economic shifts, uh, he doesn't actually have to talk about policy. Uh, interesting you talk about the Kennedy-Nixon debate. I'm old enough to remember watching all three of them on television. Don't give uh, away your you, age, Brooks. Come on. <laughs> I was, I was 11 at the time. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was young. I was precocious. Um, but people who watched it on television, and studies have, have gone back and interviewed people. The people who watched it on TV say Kennedy won. The people who listened to it on radio yeah, that's right. That's right. said Nixon won. And that's because Nixon was, was – he misunderstood the nature of the medium, really. He was all substance, and none of the effort to talk to the camera or through the camera to people. Uh, Kennedy had, a, had been, on, it been in Florida for a week to get to work up a nice tan – uh, he used professional uh, makeup artists to get himself ready for the debate. He wore a dark suit and a light-colored shirt that set off his, his bronze tan perfectly. Nixon uh, had a bad knee. He'd run into a table or something, and so he was in, he was in real pain. Uh, he had a bit of a head cold. He wore a light gray suit, and uh, he used really bad makeup to hide, but not really hide, his five o'clock shadow, and you heard him just before it went on air. Tapes have revealed afterwards. 
looking in the mirror saying, I guess I really should have shaved again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting you talk about this credibility uh, factor. We saw that uh, um, Chris was speaking about the credibility of of Hillary Clinton being at an all-time low. Hillary versus versus Trump, it's looking potentially like it could end up like that. Uh, If not uh, Trump being the Republican, maybe as an independent do you think that we could see probably one of the biggest upsets in politics when, if Trump wins? Well, I mean, I, I have a theory about this. I have, a, I have theories about everything, but the, here, here's how this one goes. Uh, primary votes are, are, are sort of like a test run. You know, you're, you're trying things out. You're, you're trying to see how it feels. It's like the taste test. You know, does that recipe taste right already or does it need more salt? Um, and so you vote for people in primary elections. As you get closer and closer to the nominating convention, it becomes more and more real. As you get to the general election in November, this year, November 8th, uh, across the country all at the same time, um, people are individually going to go into that voting booth and they're going to stand in front of the machine, either pull the lever or push the button or make their X, depending on what system is used in which place. And they're going to have to think a little bit more about do they really want to go with their gut out, teach them a lesson, you know, beat them up, or do they want to, they want to think about one other thing. That man could have the nuclear launch codes in his pocket. Mm. And he'll tell you that as well. He's, he'll, he'll definitely mention <laughs> that, you know, like I have the nuclear <laughs> planet right here in my pocket. Yeah. yeah. Um, and- and that should frighten the life out of most people. Well, Brooke, uh, so I think let's bring it back to the continent, Africa. Uh, how should we be, be be seeing and interpreting what we're seeing happening in the United States? Um, and, and what are the long-term prospects? Um, uh, part of Obama's, uh, at least foreign policy towards Africa, has been uh, about investing a lot in the development of the continent and so on. Uh, w- what are we likely to see happening if Trump uh, takes over in the White House? Uh, and, and, and what should be the concerns of African countries uh, in that respect? Well, first of all, I mean, let's, be, let's, let's be honest and serious for a second. I actually don't think, even if Trump is the Republican nominee, I don't think in a head-to-head contest with Hillary Clinton he'll win partly because he speaks nothing about policy and apparently knows very little about it either. And she'll drown him in this stuff uh, and she'll bore away. I mean, if you watched any of that um, 11 hour testimony at that House uh, Representative subcommittee investigating uh, the deaths in Benghazi, Libya, uh, that happened Mm. mid year last year, she was on the witness stand for 11 straight hours, didn't lose her cool did fact and figure after fact and figure for hour after hour after hour, totally flummoxed all those Republican congressmen and women, no matter how much they tried. All right, Trump is a whole lot better actor than any of them are. Mm-hmm. Even his even his hair is a better actor, you know. <laughs> but you know, she will eventually bore away at people saying, you know, you're right. She really does know stuff, and but he, Brooks, on the other hand, is. 
let, great entertainment. Let me interject there. We, as we spoke earlier, and you mentioned what your daughter had had found out. Does does it matter that she knows more? Does does, does the does the yeah. electorate really? Is the electorate going to respond to that at the end of the day, or or will all those facts really mean nothing when you regard when you consider the type of uh, voter that you're dealing with today? Well, I mean, ultimately, voters don't do a little tally sheet on, well, most voters don't, on issues. They don't say, well, he spoke more about the 15% yeah. tax bracket than she did. You know, that no one does that mm. uh, except columnists and analysts and people like me. Mm. Um, <laughs> but they do form an impression about knowledgeable knowledgeableness or coherence or cogency rather than He's wonderfully entertaining, but what the hell does he know? Yeah. And what, what what can he do, or what would he do? Even worse. But to go back to the, the you know the the original premise of your question about Africa, um, much of you, I mean, there is actually very little U.S. attention in the international relations sphere directly toward Africa that's partisan. In other words, there isn't a Republican policy toward Africa versus a Democratic one, right. for example. Um, th- there are shifts in emphasis to some degree. Um, I mean, if you remember the Obama speech in Accra, Ghana, back in, what was it, uh, 2009, and he was talking, he had a couple of messages. He said, look, the era of the big man in Africa is finished. Young people, younger people must step up and take charge. Self-reliance is going to be the key to your better future. And trade, more than aid, is the key to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the AGOA, African Growth and Opportunity Act, goes back to two, the year 2000. And that makes it now three presidents in a row that have been engaged in the same law. Mm-hmm. Clinton, Bush Jr., Obama. It's become an article of faith across the board Republican or Democrat. The issue about the chickens was not a partisan issue. It was an issue for several senators whose chicken growing farmers were deeply aggrieved at the ability or lack of it to export their chicken products to South Africa. That wasn't part of the, of the AGOA law, but it was a, it, it had an effect on it. But the basic concept of trade more than even aid has become a standard. Uh, regardless. The second question, though, is international security. And there you'll find, I think, a little more emphasis among any Republican, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or uh, any of the other possibilities, they'll be a little tougher and a little stronger within the confines of the general view on dealing with international, irregular, insurgent, Islamicist terrorists, whatever you want to call them, uh, in places like Mali or Chad or uh, uh, Upper Volta, not Upper Volta, that's been a while, hasn't it? Burkina Faso. And look at old maps, this is what happens to you. <laughs> uh, and uh, East Africa especially. And you won't find a shift there. I mean, Hillary Clinton's policy on those things has been, relatively speaking, uh, consistently strong and quote-unquote hawkish as well. So it's not that part won't change. Um, PEPFAR, the, the uh, AIDS program, HIV-AIDS uh, support program, 
that's had bipartisan support as well, not because of a great love for Africa, but because it was seen as a much better way to distribute assistance than just handing money over to the tin pot dictators. Mm. Brooks, uh, <laughs> let's 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 talk a bit about. Um uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, you've been inside the system. Uh, you were a diplomat as well. Um, what What is happening in the Clinton campaign? Uh, and I don't know when you left uh, uh, diplomatic service, but uh, as Secretary of State, uh, she interacts with a lot of the diplomats. Uh, what What are the, the types of conversations that are happening uh, in the diplomatic corps around... Um, the possibility of Trump or, or maybe even enhancing the chances of Hillary winning outright? Well, the, the Foreign Service, I, I left 13 years ago, so I'm, 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 I'm long retired. I keep up friend, friendships with lots of people in the Foreign Service, and I talk to them on a fairly regular basis, uh, face-to-face or by Skype or you know what, whatever is convenient, um, email, uh, to, to keep my my sense of how people think about things. But the key thing to remember, except for the very top postings and some ambassadors, uh, it's, it's a career foreign service rather than a politically appointed one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the people who are there for the duration, um, a, a key article of faith for them is they may have their views, they may advocate them or they may advocate for them. But at the end of the day, um, they serve at the they serve whoever is in charge, yeah. uh, as long as it's consistent with, you know, with the law and the Constitution. I mean, we, if we had a nut case, it'd be one thing, but uh, don't don't go there. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the within the campaign itself, and she's been out of the out of the the, the diplomatic world for what now, going on four years soon. Um, within the campaign, I understand. I mean, I, I, I was listening to some of the international broadcast and reading lots of U.S. newspapers early, early this morning, uh, and I'm starting to see newsletters from the, the, the policy think tanks and what have you. Um, they are now a little bit flummoxed by what happened in Michigan. All the polls said that they were going to win in a walk, be a double-digit lead, yeah. uh, and it turned out it didn't happen that way. And this is now being attributed uh, in large part to the fact that Bernie Sanders shifted his message a bit. He was no longer haranguing the crowds about the perfidious banks and the, the failure of the government to rein in Wall Street and, you know, how the money was being stolen by all those rich guys and you got the crumbs that stopped being his message. He had a different one in Michigan. Hmm. It was, international trade hurt you. International trade took your jobs. Inter- free international trade, the policy of my opponent, is not a helpful thing. Michigan has a higher than the national average of unemployment. National average is 4.9%, which is by historical measures, uh, actually very good. It's a, it's effectively a full recovery from, from the financial crisis of 2008, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. It'd be mm-hmm. nice to have 4.9 in this country, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. <laughs> I mean, you'd have a holiday if that <laughs> yeah. happened. Give, a, give us that in interest rates and give us that in unemployment. We'd be happy. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the banks will cry, but the rest of us will be quite pleased. Um, 
But Michigan has more than the national average. And a lot of the industry that has left on a permanent basis, a good chunk of it, not all of it, obviously, but a measurable chunk of it was based in Michigan. A lot of it was uh, subcontractors or parts manufacturers or components uh, builders for the auto industry, which is headquartered in Michigan, even if most of the assembly plants are no longer there. Um, And so that storyline in a free, unfettered, unmonitored international trade hurts you, the working man, had a real resonance in Michigan. The Clinton camp didn't see it because they were focused on beginning to tell their message about Donald Trump. And now after they recover from the shock of this, it's sort of like now that the hangover uh, has hit them real, um, they're going to have to figure out how to still be in favor of trade, but somehow say they're going to watch it much more carefully, just like you want. Mm. Brooks, uh, as we let you go, uh, Tony Leon, the former leader of the Democratic Alliance, uh, uh, has written an article that says, With Trump, as with Malema, fear is the key to poll success. Uh, very quickly, as we let you go, uh, do you think that the similarities, you've spent enough time in South Africa to know, are, there, are, are the similarities uh, strong enough uh, between Julius Malema and Donald Trump to say that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is the Julius Malema of the United States? Um, I, I think it's a bad comparison in a, in a special kind of way. Um, Julius Malema has not demonstrated success in any other sphere of life. He's not been a businessman particularly. He's not been uh, a professional man in any given circumstance. He's wholly a political man. Mm. Uh, Trump made his success somewhere else first. You can argue about whether or not it was was actually as successful as he says, but he made his successes and then translated that into the political realm, imported it in. Mm. Uh, I I tend to think of Donald Trump as a a curious mixture of Benito Mussolini. (laughs) (laughs) Mussolini had crowds in his hands. I mean, and, you know, he, he managed to to appeal to people across the economic frontier. And that's the difference. Julius Malema has not really managed to appeal to the, um, uh, to the JSE 50 uh, top performers, uh, CEOs. Now has he? Mm. Uh, Mussolini could. Um, but then there are two other figures that I would throw in the mix. Um, uh, well, let's... George Wallace, who was the segregationist, racist governor of Alabama in the in the fifties and sixties, who ran as an independent uh, president on a strictly uh, segregationist ticket in nineteen sixty eight, didn't win. Obviously, there's no president Wallace, um, but he appealed to that portion of the population again who felt threatened by them by demography, and a man whose name you probably don't know, uh, Huey Long. Huey Long was a was a real uh, a real crowd pleaser of a populist in the middle of the Depression, Great Depression in the nineteen twenties and thirties. A governor of Louisiana who promised every man will be king and he will soak the rich. 
even as he took a great deal of money himself. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. He was always a long shot. Um, There we go. Brooke Spector, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, He is uh, on the Daily Maverick almost every single week. You can check him out there. Uh, Brooks, thank you so much for joining us on this show. What would it be like if uh, Mr. Donald J. Trump became president? We appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Anytime. All right. So now we've got uh, someone very interesting on the line at the moment. It's uh, former head of the DA and DP, Tony Leon. Tony, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. I want to start with a little bit of an audio piece just to get us going on this. This was um, Donald Trump's um, discussion or reaction to we heard about him saying that he wants to kill ISIS families, which is basically tantamount to to war crimes. Uh, he was then asked about this uh, his speech about that uh, at a debate. Have a listen to this. We're waiting the start of the big Republican debate here on CNN. It is the first GOP debate since the slaughters in Paris and San Bernardino. The focus, national security, it is all happening. We have a question on this war against ISIS and how you would fight and win this war. Here is the question from Facebook. Listen to this. I'm Josh Jacob from Georgia Tech. Recently, Donald Trump mentioned that we must kill the families of ISIS members. However, this violates the principle of distinction between civilians and combatants in international law. So my question is, how would intentionally killing innocent civilians set us apart from ISIS? Mr. Trump, we have to be much tougher. We have to be much stronger than we've been. We have people that know what's going on. You take a look at just the attack in California the other day. There were numerous people, including the mother, that knew what was going on. They saw pipe bombs sitting all over the floor. They saw ammunition all over the place. They knew exactly what was going on. When you had the World Trade Center go, people were put into planes that were friends, family, girlfriends, and they were put into planes, and they were sent back, for the most part, to Saudi Arabia. They knew what was going on. They went home, and they wanted to watch their boyfriends on television. I would be very, very firm with families. And frankly, that will make people think because they may not care much about their lives, but they do care, believe it or not, about their families' lives. Donald, this is So that's Donald uh, Trump uh, speaking about his wild accusations of killing ISIS family members. Uh, good morning to you, Tony Leon from Cape Town. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. We seem to have lost uh, Tony Leon. I mean, Rory, just looking at that, listening to that, how does that make you feel? I feel nothing, to be honest. <laughs> it's uh, again. I've, I'm freaked out. I don't know. So th- that's the thing. It's it's. I don't think he's a man of consequence. I I I just don't see him winning. So I think that's why I just don't take anything that he's saying seriously. I I don't see him winning. So did you see? Did you hear how bored he sounded? Uh, when he took when he it's like, oh my goodness, what a boring technical question. Uh, and then he comes out and he uses a soundbite and just. He just doesn't seem interested, and I don't think so. When push comes to shove, I don't think he's going to do it. It's much like what Tony Leon uh, writes uh, in his article: uh, If Julius Malema is to be put in the position of power, is he likely to 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 follow through and actually do the things that he he says he do? I mean, we we saw them say they will not take up, uh, they won't take up the, the the privileges and perks of parliamentarians and so on. And then they got into parliament and they just uh, cast that aside and just kept it moving and are now enjoying those perks and privileges. So that's why I'm not taking what Donald Trump is saying seriously because I think once he gets in there, he's just going to assimilate. I, I might be wrong. Let, let's ask Tony. Let's let's hear from the man himself, Tony Leon. Thank you so much. 
much for joining us from Cape Town this morning. Good morning to you. Hello. Good uh, morning. How are you doing? <laughs> I know. It's very confusing with all these time zones going on as to where we actually are. Uh, you wrote a really interesting article about uh, Julius Malema and Donald Trump saying that he, Donald Trump is the self-declared misogynist, xenophobe, anti-Islamist, papal-bashing braggart. Jeez, I have to get a dictionary off of these words, Tony. Um, your, I mean, your thoughts, let's speak about Donald first and then, uh, and then we can get into Julius Malema. You, you've been in the politician seat before. Is this just a, a populist game? Is he, is he, is there something of substance here? Should we be worried? Rory, my co-host here, is not worried at all because he thinks he's full of hot air. Should we be worried? Well, I think uh, it depends on your perspective. I think a lot of, I mean, Donald Trump won another three states uh, early this morning in Hawaii, Idaho, and most significantly, oh, he lost in Idaho, sorry, Michigan and Mississippi. So, I mean, he, he on the Republican table, can win pretty much all over the country in all regions of America. Of course, in a general election, it be different. Um, and Hillary Clinton herself has got some problems because uh, she lost Michigan to Bernie Sanders, who in a different way uh, also is a populist, although he's from a different perspective uh, from Trump. He's more left, a bit like Malema. And, um, but they both tapped what I call into the zeitgeist, into the spirit of the times or the age. And in a way that Malema does it here very effectively as well. Should you be worried? Well, look, I, I mean, the American political system, it does not give huge powers to the president, except in foreign policy. As we know, you can invade a country quite easily, but you have great difficulty passing your own budget without appointing a judge without the say-so of um, the other party, even a minority party. So, the American political system has got more and balances against you know, a populist dictator or wannabe populist dictator than, say, the South African constitution. We've seen with our constitution, all its impressive architecture, actually it's quite easy for one guy to do what he likes within uh, not too many limits. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't worry too much about you know Trump becoming a new Benito Mussolini or whatever people think he might become. I would worry if he became president, which I would still say is improbable but possible, that what he will do is he will simply pull up the drawbridge and America will retreat into itself and it will no longer really engage with the world. It will take a very hostile attitude towards um, getting its way on the economic front, threatening to do with China, uh, threatening to do with Mexico or Mexican immigrants. So those things, you know, he, he, he would probably reduce the good that America does in the world. Of course, if you think America doesn't do much good in the world, you might like a President Trump because he certainly, you know, for saying he's a Republican and seeking the nomination, you know, he took George W. Bush to task for Afghanistan and Iraq, which generally have been popular among Republicans, but uh, he clearly wins anyway without them. I, I think just on Trump, before we get on to Malema, there is one point. I mean, very rarely does Trump win any of these primary contests for the party nomination with more than 40% of the vote. He usually does so with less. And a lot of these primaries are proportional. So, for example, there's only 100 delegates ahead of uh, his, num number, his main rival, uh, Ted Cruz, who's also pretty extreme, but uh, less of a braggart than Trump. And I think the other point about the whole nomination process is that Trump benefits because there's a divided opposition against him. So if Cruz, Rubio, and Kasich were one, and then instead of splitting it three ways, he probably wouldn't 
enjoy the success that he has up until now in terms of winning the contest. Of course, you cut South Africa, Alema, you know, we're a developed democracy in terms of year clock. We've about 22 years as America is a more or less democratic country and expanding democracy for, for, for several hundred years. We, um, we are susceptible because we've got very high unemployment. Yeah, we've got very fractured, uh, at times, race relations to populist messages from Democrat Malema. So in that sense, you know, there is some similarity um, between the two of them. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about this populist idea, specifically around Julius Malema. Um, you know, you, you've been a former leader of the opposition for a long, long time. Looking at Julius Malema now in the current context of South Africa, could he be the next president in South Africa? Do you think he has what it takes to potentially dethrone the ANC? Well, look, just at looking at the numbers um, is very improbable. In the last general election, it was Mitley his first. He only got 6% of the vote. Now, my party, before I became the I got 1.7%. That's now got 22 So you can, you can improve radically in South African elections and quite short of time. But to go from 6% to 5% short of some, you know, a seismic earthquake in the country politically or socially is very unlikely. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to the ANC and, and because if that, that party is strange enough, both uh, did, uh, strong and, and in terms of votes, but extremely divided, probably its weakest point, uh, at the moment, if there's a fracturing further in the ANC, well, then anything is possible. And Malema and the economic radicalism that he espouses might be able to make common cause some faction within the ANC at the moment that breaks away further. So we don't know what, what's going to happen you know, to the majority party in the future. But if Malema can ally his chunk of votes to another section of the party currently in the ANC then it becomes more possible. Equally, you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of the divide with the DA. If the DA simply keeps the more or less 22, 23% it got at the last election at more, and then goes into business with another faction of a disintegrating ANC, if that happens, uh, then, of course, they could be much stronger than Malema and the left. Because I do think, if you know, to the extent that political philosophy and ideology and policy matters. South Africans are, relatively speaking, not that radical. They don't go for the radical options. They've had radical options, you know, presented them in the past, and they've tended not to uh, uh, to endorse them with their votes. They tend to go for mainstream alternatives, and um, that's pretty much been the pattern of our politics. But, you know, what I think is interesting about uh, Malema and, and Trump, I gave a talk about this to a big business group the other day, I said, you know, in the classic sense, both of them are disruptors. And if you go and look at business models, just to switch the analogy for a moment, you know, you, you've got classic disruptors in business. The small guy who comes along, he disrupts the sort of market leader and pretty quickly actually becomes the market leader himself or herself. And that is when politics is unsettled, as it's not just in South Africa and America, but in the wider world, then... I think, you know, options that look one day can become mainstream quite quickly. Tony, uh, you, you speak of disruption. Um, and, and, of course, 
the reason why the disruption happens, I guess, is is because uh, it's a response to underlying market fundamentals that are changing, or the way that co- consumers have begun to change in ways in nascent in ways that are nascent. Uh, at the beginning, they might not necessarily also be aware that they have these new needs uh, until somebody uh, comes up with something that satisfies those needs. Uh, what is it that you you think uh, uh, the, the 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 broad population is is needing that the likes of Trump and Malema are responding to? And should rather than pointing to them as 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 uh, extremists and so on, should the other parties and the other leaders not be saying, okay, these guys seem to have their fingers on the pulse of what the people want. Maybe we need to start moving uh, closer. Uh, we've certainly seen the DA, uh, one might argue, start to use a lot of those t- the tactics that uh, Julius uh, has been using. Um, so is that just not they are on the pulse and they understand things better and, and maybe the others have to now start moving in that direction as well? I think that's a very fundamental and very important question. Let me just start with one the obvious point about disruption. I mean, mm-hmm. social media has made it all Just let's take Trump and Malema for a moment. I, I looked for something the other day when I was giving a talk and, and writing that article you've written in Sunday Times. Uh, Trump has 6 million followers on Twitter. 6 million. That is a great number of Twitter followers than any combination of newspaper circulations in America. If you actually access all the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, you know, Instagram, whatever, he reaches 12 million. So pretty much just talk straight through the traditional media, the, the normal filters and uh, and message readers of, of political uh, campaigns past just simply don't apply to him because mm-hmm. he, he talks directly to people. But that is not of your acumen, but of his celebrity status yeah. in America. And so he has used celebrityhood, he has used social media, which he uses very well in it, to, to directly uh, give messages to his supporters. In a way, less um, impressively, but still certainly there. Maybe does something of the same. Just on the, I was struck by the fact that a million followers on uh, Twitter, more or less, I think. You mean Julius? Julius, my name a million. Mm. It's a great number. I mean, your boss there, old uh, Gareth Cliff, has many more. Maybe she's quite well. Maybe he should. He, um, maybe he should jump in as well. Uh, Tony, Tony, I want to. I want to interrupt you for one but, second. But you, yeah, to, sorry, I just want to interrupt you. Your line is quite bad. I would like us just to recall you, if possible, just to wrap up with the discussion. Uh, there are one or two questions that I'd love to ask you. Um, so we're going to just try and recall you right now on a on a better line. Um, interesting to hear him talk about scare tactics, and I, I want to talk to him a little bit about this. When he was a politician back in the day. I don't know if you ever remember the posters. Maybe mm-hmm. you were too young. You know? Stop stop uh, ANC. Stop the ANC from yes. taking over this country. Um so he he used scare tactics and uh clearly it it, it worked in, in some in some sense because they became the official opposition. But um but it's interesting how now, as an observer, he's very critical of Julius Malema using the scare tactics. And fear is ultimately an important emotion, right? It actually drives a lot of what we do as human beings. So uh, I think every politician ultimately tries to appeal to, to fear or hope. 
depending on what they feel resonates the most at the time. And certainly right now in South Africa, uh, fear is just easier to reach out to than hope because what do you hope for? Uh, there's nothing that, that shows us. I mean, Mandela was Mandela because he appealed to our hope. Uh, one can argue that uh, Mbeki, I am an African, also created a sense of uh, of some hope or a picture of hope. Um, what do you what do you reach out to? It's just easiest for a guy like Julius to to appeal to fear. Absolutely. And as we as we're talking, Rory, which is very interesting. Um, we we I've just seen a, a new trend going on Twitter with which says if Trump wins you got to check it out hashtag if Trump wins some very funny tweets the CIA will waterboard suspected terrorists with Trump water if Trump wins. <laughs> <With Trump water. laughs> well, you're, you're better than Trump vodka. <laughs> well, let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Tony, we were just talking while while we we're getting you back online there. Um, you know, scared, scare politics is, is big and using fear to, to rally people around them. You used a little bit of scare tactics in the, in the 1990s, didn't you? To, to rally, I suppose, the white population around the DP of the time. Well, I wouldn't call them scare tactics. We encouraged uh, our supporters to fight back, but that was from a terrible election defeat in 94, which I wasn't responsible for. And ironically, it was a United States Democratic Party strategist and pollster who devised that slogan based on a a focus group in Chatsworth in Durban where um, one of the people taking part said, well, what I'd really like to do is a political party to fight back for me. So they said, well, you should go with fight back. Anyway, that cause was manna from heaven for the ANC. But, I mean, the party's votes did increase from, you know, 400% in that election. So clearly it resonated. I I didn't see that as a scare tactic. Some people do. We'll have to disagree with that. But, 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 but Tony, I mean, isn't that the point exactly? So, uh, you, you, you don't sound to have been a, fa- you don't sound like you were an extreme fan of it, but it worked. And irrespective of the backlash against it, it worked. And is that yes. not what we're seeing Julius, uh, uh, doing? So, irrespective of, uh, what we call it and what we label it, it's working. And is that not the role of politicians ultimately to reach out to what resonates with the electorate at that point in time and then to leverage it to, to accumulate power? Can we say yeah. that what they're doing is wrong? No, I don't think they're right or wrong. I mean, there's politics and it's not a sort of, it's, you're not entering the priesthood or, uh, you know, it's, it's not a religion. And, and I think one, I think one should, uh, should, should maintain a sense of perspective. And you don't know whether Malema's tactics are going to work because um, he hasn't yet been tested since his debut in Parliament uh, three year, two years ago. We'll see in this year's local elections whether that populist fury can be translated into votes. I mean, Trump does it, but that is because in the United States, I mean, people have a very much, I would say, looser um, political affiliation than people do here. I do think in South Africa, the party label is very important. I think that is why the ANC endures despite a lot of brand damage. It's why the DA uh, does well, relatively speaking, because it's got a lot of traditional supporters who keep supporting it. So I think, you know, in America, it tends to be people kind of support their party, but they're the swing voters in the middle who are susceptible to messages, fear, whatever it is. And we perhaps have fewer them here than there, but I don't know. We'll see soon enough. Tony, uh, we're, we need to wrap up very soon. Just quickly, as a as a former politician, politician to 
to politician, I suppose, and businessman to businessman, Trump to, to Leon. Where have you seen Trump do really well? Where were you like, wow, now that was an exceptional tactic? Oh, I, I think his, you know, exceptional tactic actually is the tactic of offering no substance. That's just because he was, <laughs> oh, you've got to have a policy. Got to be the, he actually just has a few kind of, you know, gut reactions. And, and that plays very, very well. And it was very interesting to me, someone I really admire, a great writer, Thomas Friedman, he wrote a column in the New York Times this morning, and he said, you know, if you want to understand Trump, you've got to go to people's guts. You can't go to people's brains. That mm. people, we respond viscerally. We respond emotionally. Much, and this is you know, the United States, which, you know, had centuries of democratic progress and a you know, highly educated population versus many other parts of the world. And he's basically saying, look, this guy who gets to your gut, he's the guy that people tend to respond to. So I would say that really, I'm always amazed, you know, I see Trump on television being boastful, uh, talking in generalities and almost cliches. I think, you know, because someone's going to see through all this, or as mm. Mitt Romney tried to do last Thursday. And yet, it doesn't seem to affect him. Now, I do need to qualify this. I was happy to share a platform with a Republican I hugely admire, who was happened to be in Johannesburg last week, uh, Colin Powell, who was the Secretary of State and first African-American joint, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a most thoughtful man. And he said, look, he's absolutely confident that Trump will be the pre- will be the nominee of the Republican Party, but he's equally confident that because of that fact, Hillary Clinton will become the next president of the United States. So I do think we need... It, it's very engaging, the American political system. It's exciting that every week there's a, another contest in another state. But I think if you take a longer view, you've got to say this is all very interesting, but at the end of the day, an establishment figure like Clinton will probably prevail over the general election. Tony, and I guess in South Africa, you could say, look, Malema is very smart. He's, he's very articulate. He gets the, the zeitgeist, does all those things. But at the end of the day, it will be a contest between the ANC and the DA. Tony, as we wrap up, uh, what what would you advise? Because this this certainly is, can't be an accident, right? It, it, there, there is something here that maybe politicians in practice right now need to take notice of around the general mood of the people and so on. If you had to advise, uh, uh, let's say, Musi Maimane on going into the elections, uh, given what we're learning, what, what we learned through Julius and, and, and what we're learning through Trump, what would be the big sort of uh, lesson in a tweet that you would say to him? Oh, I'll give it to you in two words. It actually comes from, strange enough, of, uh, you know, a, a, a novelist, English novelist, E.M. Forster at the beginning of the last century, who in Howard's end said, only connect. I think you've just got to connect with people. Mm. Uh, it's as simple and as complicated as that. Do you think Musi is connecting? Well, you know, look, the jury's out. So, I mean, uh, I think certain trying, and I think, you know, I think the personal uh, will and Now, Mr. Indeed. Politician, I've asked you a very serious question, <laughs> and you're <laughs> well, trying to get rid of I, it. No, I would like jury, to get your opinion. Do you think, jury, do you think? The jury, the jury is out. I don't know, because his first test hasn't happened. And that's going to happen in these local elections. And I'm, I've said it, and I'll say it to you, and I've said it to him. You know, when I was leader of the DA in 2006, 10 years ago, it was essential that the Democratic Alliance won the city of Cape Town then under ANC hands because we had to you know, get our relevance back. And 
by the narrowest of margins, we won Cape Town and installed Helen Zilla as the mayor, and the rest, you know, then progressed from there. I have said, directly and indirectly, 10 years later, the DA has to win a city beyond Cape Town to prove its relevance again. So that's the test for him. He has got to win a metro in either or some combination of Port Elizabeth, Pretoria, and Joburg. If he doesn't win one of those three, then that's the answer to your question. He hasn't connected well enough. If he does, he has. And, you know, you're only as good as your next election if you're a politician. Tony, uh, as we finish with you, thank you so much for joining us. I got, thank I have you for to, having me. I have to ask. I have to ask because I've always wanted to know. Did you or did you not Photoshop yourself to be darker in those DP posters all those years ago? I just have <laughs> to know. I mean, just be honest with us. Just be honest with us. No, I had nothing to do with that. My, Are you my sure? My just at the time, Ryan Kutia gave a slightly ambivalent answer, but I thought I looked great. I looked very tanned. <laughs> you look, you look more than tanned. You look like a different race, Tony. But anyway, well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and uh, and uh, an insight into uh, well, Donald Trump. No, well, let's see. Let's look at the, it's still a show in motion, so let's see how it plays out. Brilliant. Former leader of uh, the Democratic Party and Democratic Alliance, Tony Leon, joining us from Cape Town. Rory, we're up in time. Donald Trump... Could he be president? Where are you at? No, I don't think he's going to be president. I ah, think it's, look at you. Look at you. We can't wait for the show to be over so we can get on with things. Uh, and by that, we mean the American show. <laughs> Our show is over. <laughs> do you, do you so think we should get on with things. We should we place a little bet on this, I feel. Yeah, we can place a bet. Oh, you think he's going to, I think, I think he's, he's going to win and become the president of the I United th- States of America. I'm going to put my money on it. Not yeah. going to happen. All right, I'll, let's put 500 bucks. 500 bucks, cool. Done. Done. All right, 500 bucks, Trump to win. Oh, my God. The house always wins there, Rory. you got to check that out. Thank you so much for joining us. You can check out the podcast, frankly speaking, on cliffcentral.com. We'll see you next week. Have a good day. Donald Trump views the truth like this Lima views the Supreme Court vacancy. I don't care about that in any way. Please f*** off. I have a banana. He said, where are you from? Mexico. I said, that's great. I love you, too. I do. I love Mexico. I've had tremendous relationships with people in Mexico. But I said, we need a strong border. I said, we need a wall. Because the website PolitiFact checked 77 of his statements and rated 76% of them as varying degrees of false. His brand is what he values uh, very much. And his his disclosure form that he's released, it's about $3 billion. That's what he values his brand as. Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, just so you understand, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. Honestly, I don't know David Duke. I don't believe I've ever met him. I'm pretty sure I didn't meet him, and I just don't know anything about him. Our people don't know what they're doing. Our leaders don't know what they're doing. I mean, we live off Chinese manufacturing, whether we like it or not. That's because when you say we, you are stupid. People don't want my message. Maybe they want to stay mediocre. And if they do, they should put a politician in office because that's what's going to happen. This is CliffCentral.com.